0: And welcome into to the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts podcast. Today we have a very special guest. We have Boston Celtics physical therapist and assistant athletic trainer. We have Patrick Chase. Patrick, welcome in.
1: Chase, thanks for having me, man. I, I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to chatting with you today.
0: All right. We've talked a little bit um, pre-show bef- about you, um, but kind of why don't you give it a little bit of an introduction to the people that are listening about you know where you came from and what got you into physical therapy in the first place.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I I think it probably goes back to when I was pretty young, like in high school, playing sports, and I'm sure that's not too unsimilar from a lot of people on on your podcast and and yourself, even. Um, but yeah, I mean, growing up, played played uh, you know soccer, basketball, baseball, and was always interested in in finding a way to stay involved in whether it's athletics or sports or something that involves physical activity. That was always sort of uh, my aim. Um, And as I was finishing high school, I was noticing that there was an athletic trainer that was covering our games every once in a while. Um, And so I sort of just started shadowing her and learning more about what she does. And that is really where my interest started. Um, so it would have been 17 or 18 years old and, um, you know, from there sort of grew and I found different areas that I felt more passionate about, but, but that was definitely the start of it.
0: Gotcha. Um, and so kind of tell us a little bit more about your journey. So you did athletic training and then kind of tell us a little bit more about your journey through there and then even into PT school.
1: Uh, so at the time, like when I was applying uh, for schools, like not all of them had, I think the, some of the schools still had concentrations, they call them. So like your major would be PE or physical education, but you'd have a concentration in athletic training. Um, But when I, at the time when I was applying, there was just starting to become mainstream to have actual, just straight up standard bachelor's athletic training programs um, where that was the sole focus. It was a recognized major. Uh, Katie was the accrediting body that oversaw that. And so that like Right away, that was very attractive to me because it looked like a way to involve sort of the sciences and keep my interest in athletics. Um, I honestly never knew I was going to go to PT school. I sort of thought I was going to do my four years, get my athletic training, bachelor's, sit for my BOC exam. And I thought that was going to be it. Um, As I was in college, I I was lucky enough to have some really good mentors and, um, and so it was pretty consistent through a couple of the mentors I had that if I have an opportunity to pursue the highest degree in the field that I'm interested in, I should do it. Um, and so right around that time, similarly to the way athletic training programs had evolved, physical therapy programs had evolved to become DPT. Um, and so I, uh, I applied to, a few schools again, wasn't sure that's what I was going to do. I was, there were a couple of athletic training jobs I was interviewing for. Um, and, but at the end that felt like the right move. And, and I really think that was the right move because ultimately I wanted to, you know, you could definitely go on and receive different degrees and other areas that support what you want to do from an athletic training perspective. But I felt like from a human body, human movement, understanding how all the body's systems, um, basically are interrelated, uh, I think PT was probably the right move for me at that time.
0: Gotcha. And so after you finished PT school, kind of tell us a little bit more about your journey. I saw you did a fellowship, but I'm sure you had, you know, stops in between fellowship and after, after graduation. So kind of tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, no, no question, Chase. I mean, I, uh, first of all, I should acknowledge that failure and not uh, pursuing the path I wanted to when I wanted to pursue it was a big part of my history and and I'll touch on that as we talk but um, like if we go back to the PT school situation like I applied to four PT schools I only got into one and uh and I think that speaks to how competitive and how many great students there are out there but I also just want to encourage those people listening or people that are paying attention to this that um, and I was very lucky to get into the school I got to, I think I even got in without fulfilling some of the prereqs because I sort of lobbied for myself that a lot of the athletic training courses were the same. And, and they, I think they, <laughs> I don't know, maybe they had a down year, but they, they were willing to take me on. Um, you know, but I think just getting back to that, um, you know, I, it wasn't easy for me to get into PT school and I was very lucky and fortunate to get in, um, and then, similarly as i was finishing pt school i sort of had my eye on on fellowship programs which were becoming more common but back then i mean this was that's not that long ago but we're talking 10 11 years ago uh there weren't nearly as many as there are now the process for applying for them is so streamlined now especially if you're applying to just apta accredited programs um but i applied to a fellowship right out of school thinking that like why not like why you know why would I? Why would I go to a residency? I should just go right to a fellowship. And the program I was after was was Duke's Division One uh, Sports Physical Therapy um, Fellowship. And and it, it was kind of funny. It was actually really good for me to apply and get rejected the first time because um, because it kind of helped me educate myself on the process and the other options out there at the same time. Um, but yeah, I I like a very naive new grad. I thought I could just jump right in and. Um, that wasn't the case. But I will say the silver lining that happened in that, I was very fortunate to in applying to that program, get to know some people and almost go. It wasn't an interview by any means, but I had enough conversations where people got to know me. And so what ended up happening was I got rejected. I took sort of a standard job that was really close to where I grew up. Uh, I was trying to save some money to to. Cause I knew eventually my, my career was going to take me away from home. Um, so as I was saving money, working like a standard, like sports uh, clinic, outpatient PT job, Duke ended up calling me and was like, Hey, um, you know, you can't do our fellowship. You're not qualified to do that. Um, but we do have a job open for a dual credentialed person in our, uh, at the time it was their sports medicine um, clinic. And they're like, we, you know, we need somebody We're we need to move quickly on it. Are you interested? And I, I basically was like, yeah, I didn't even think about it. I was like, no, this is, this is great. And the more I learned about the position, the more attracted I became to it. Cause I knew I could probably grow and learn like their residents and fellows, even though I wasn't one, if I, if I put in the time, I could probably gain a lot of the benefits they were getting. Um, so that failure, rejection of not getting a fellowship turned into basically my first real job out of, uh, out of PT school, which was, was down in Durham, North Carolina.
0: Gotcha. And then, so eventually you went on to do the fellowship program, um, cause you kind of, that was your goal at the beginning. Um, so kind of talk us through, um, a little bit more about your experience in their fellowship program.
1: Yeah, sure. That, I mean, that program really was the foundation for, I think why I was able to get other opportunities in the, in the sports PT and sports medicine industry. Um, I felt like the combination of seeing a ton of patients, both in the clinic and in uh, the athletic department really helped me. I mean, anyone who's done a residency and fellowship knows that half of it is you're drinking from a fire hose and you're trying to handle all the things they throw you. But the other half that you probably don't really even appreciate as much day to day is you're just seeing such a diverse caseload of all different types of orthopedic and sports injuries And really like to see them in younger people and to see them in settings where the people need to get back to a high demand lifestyle and and occupation like student athletes do, I really feel like was what prepared me the most. All the other things that get thrown at you and Duke's program, like I'm biased, but it is very special. There's a lot of people working there that you get to interact with. I want to say the, the, just on the clinical side, just in the, uh, they ended up, transitioning at that time to the Sports Science Institute there. But just in DSSI, there were probably 30 clinicians and maybe 20 of them were PTATCs. Almost everybody there was board certified in something, whether it be sports, orthopedics. Um, So ultimately, like you're thrown in there with all these people. and, And the uncomfortable part is you're getting judged and critiqued constantly. The benefit to that is you know, you sort of humble your way into learning a ton in a short amount of time. And that's probably the pitch I would give to people that are interested in in residencies or fellowships is that you're going to sort of gain a one, two, maybe three years of experience that you would gain in the outpatient setting. Um, But you're going to do it in in 11 months, maybe 12 months. So, um, so yeah, I really got a lot out of that program. I thought the interaction between the physical therapy fellow resident and the orthopedic fellows in residence was tremendous. Um, you're meeting very often with physicians who are sort of on the same trajectory as you in their, in their um, training. And so you get to interact and collaborate with them. They challenge you, you challenge them. Um, I thought that interaction really prepared me well, because ultimately, if you're a a sports physical therapist, and you're going on to hold a leadership position with a team, whether it's a college or pro team, you're going to have to be super comfortable around physicians. And even if the conversations aren't always comfortable, you're going to have to be very, uh, you're going to have to build a trusting relationship to be able to ask questions and to not have people think you're questioning them necessarily, but you're comfortable having in-depth discussions on topics and really truly understanding them alongside your, your physician counterparts. So um, I mean, I, I could definitely go on and on about Duke's particular program. I really, really am grateful that I had an opportunity to do it and work with so many great people there. Um, there are a ton of other great programs out there as well. Um, but definitely offer to anybody listening or people interested in the podcast, if you want to throw my contact out there, I'm happy to to answer further questions on it for people interested.
0: Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of go after your your post-Duke career um, so I saw that you were working with the Blue Jays, you know, you talked about being in like higher level, like rehab coordinator kind of positions. Talk to us a little bit about, ab- uh, a little bit more about
1: your time with the Blue Jays. Uh, so again, another opportunity I was really fortunate to have, um, I, I sort of got recruited there by a colleague of mine who, who I had at Duke who ended up going there before me. Her name was Nikki Huffman. And, um, and so, you know, like it, we honestly had a great, I had a great four years there. Um, the first two of them were spent largely just handling rehab cases. So the setup that I sort of walked into was, um, anyone who got injured at any of the, I think at the time it was eight different teams, uh, spanning three different countries. I mean, from the Dominican Republic to the States, to the team up in Toronto, um, we covered at the time, I think five different States between those eight teams. So geographically it was a challenge because you couldn't really be with the athletic trainers physically who are on the ground, seeing a lot of these injuries develop. That was probably the first learning curve I had was just communicating effectively from afar to understand what players were going through before they traveled down to Florida to work with me in the rehab setting. Um, But essentially that was the role I had. It was, you know, the accountability and responsibility of managing, designing, developing, and implementing return-to-play programs for players who were out for, you know, more significant stretches, more than we would say two weeks or more. They'd fly down to Florida. Um, I I was very blessed to have a lot of resources there. Like in in addition to myself, we had a sports scientist who was uh, a resource for rehab. We had a mental performance coach. Who was licensed in psychology to to help with players as they were going through difficult times in Rehab? We had a strength coach who was assigned to the Rehab group, and we had a dietitian. Uh, and I, obviously we had a baseball coach. Um, so really, the setup I thought was pretty holistic. If you're a player who gets injured that's that's a lot that's access to a lot of different specialty areas. Um, I, we probably fumbled around, if I'm being honest, the first year trying to figure out exactly how uh, the return to play model should look. Um, but in terms of setup, structure and support, it was great. And so no matter who the player was, whether it was a 17 year old kid from the DR who you know blows his shoulder out or whether it was a high leverage major league guy up in Toronto, they were coming down to work with us until they were ready to go. Um, and, and those first two years were great. I learned a ton. Um, and like I said, we had a lot of support. So that a lot of that, those first two years challenged me a lot. I then moved into a, a medical coordinator role after that, where I sort of helped rethink our medical process and um, try to best support our affiliate athletic trainers more. Um, and, I, and at that time, it was fun because I was able to bring in more people with me, I was able to hire a couple more physical therapists to work at our facility, uh, down in Florida. We also started a fellowship program at the time. Um, so we had a, what we call the professional sports, uh, physical therapy fellowship that we kicked off. Um, and again, that was a challenge because we didn't, we didn't go through the APTA for that, which is not a, not necessarily a common route. There aren't that many uncredentialed or non credentialed, uh, physical therapy residencies or fellowships, but to be honest, I couldn't handle the, Prudentially by myself. I'm sure you've heard about how difficult that is. Uh, I won't waste any time on this podcast talking about that. You're welcome, but um, but it's a lot. So we so instead of doing that, we tried to partner with local resources. We linked up with friends from Duke, West Point, uh, Ohio State, uh, HSS, and St. Luke's, and we did a sort of a monthly case study presentation. We we basically just tried to link up with anyone that was interested in learning. Um, But what was cool about starting a fellowship program there, it actually elevated a lot of the departments we had uh, with Toronto. Like there were times where we were doing journal articles on, on Friday mornings and we had pitching coaches in there who were interested in the topic or hitting coaches or guys who were interested in skill acquisition. So it actually ended up being, even though I really wanted it to be like as much as possible, an opportunity for the sports physical therapy, uh, physical therapy fellow, it ended up becoming more of like a holistic organizational. What's the topic we're interested in. Let's let the fellow run with it and let's all try to learn as much as we can about it through an article. Uh, Yeah. That's
0: actually really awesome that you guys like started a fellowship. Um, You know, I didn't know that. Um, But you, you know, you said that you worked as a rehab coordinator and then kind of moved on to a medical coordinator. And you said one of the toughest things was, you know, working with people that are not living in, you know, the same country even, Um, so when you're, you know, zoom has become such a common thing and, you know, online, you know, online face-to-face communication has become so common now, um, before the pandemic and this became the norm, how would you guys like make sure to communicate effectively, um, across three different countries about, you know, where an athlete is in the rehab process to make sure they, you know, they don't fall through the cracks and make sure that they get back to the field as quickly as possible.
1: That's a great question, and that was definitely a learning curve for me. I, like I said, I was fortunate to have support. Like I, I had an athletic trainer when I first got there, who was right alongside me, who had been working pro baseball for a long time. Um, I leaned on him a lot. Like he was able to, he was able to communicate day to day with the athletic trainers that he was overseeing, and and feed that back to me. At the same time, there were times where I would reach out to them as well. Um, but it wasn't always easy. I think what helped us. At least what I think helped us early on and probably got even better as time went was um, just the process, like instilling a process that uh, we all recognize, understand and can carry out. And so, as you can imagine, as other people may have heard, like something as simple as objective markers and objective testing wasn't always common in pro sports. Um, the Blue Jays were, I would say, more progressive than most people when I got there, and they were already in tune with a lot of that. But um, I think having, having the staff at each of the affiliates get comfortable with that and be okay saying when they didn't understand something or didn't know something helped a lot. But for us, you know, you can communicate a lot subjectively and, and clinical judgment and coaches judgment and just human interaction is key uh, in that setting. But at the same time, it's great to have something to back that up. So if you're seeing something on the field that you really think is great or you're seeing a player, like in this instance, a lot of times it was pitchers progress, that's all awesome. But being able to sort of couple that subjective view of how the person's doing with, oh, and by the way, you know, here's their shoulder strength numbers for the last week. Here's their range of motion that they're maintaining or not maintaining. Um, I think those, those things always help. So that a lot of the times that's what I was interested in. Like I was getting great subjective info from the people supporting me in my role. A lot of times I wanted to also understand how the objective data uh, was or wasn't um, sort of running in parallel with, with the subjective info.
0: Right. Um, so I kind of wanted to keep moving on your, through your career. Um, so now you work for the Boston Celtics. So kind of tell us a little bit more about how that came about and kind of what your role is in the organization.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I didn't think I was going to be leaving Toronto. I was pretty happy there. I had my family was in Florida with me. We sort of looked at that as a long-term view, but I had someone reach out to me and, and pass me along the opportunity with the Celtics and, um, Again, like when I even when I talked to my wife about it for the first time, we weren't sure because we were pretty happy and and we felt pretty comfortable and uh, we're really enjoying uh, things with the Blue Jays. But the more I learned about the position with the Celtics, the more I got to know the people involved. You know, it was hard not to get excited about it. I mean, it was it was a really great opportunity with a team that yeah you know, I grew up in New England watching. Um, so. I think that combined with the opportunity to not i think one thing i was concerned about a little bit at the time maybe maybe too much to be honest was the more you stay in one sport sometimes you sort of get pigeonholed into being a baseball guy or a football you know pt or a, a um you know whatever sport you're in if you're in it for a little bit too long sometimes People start to assume that that's sort of your niche, which is totally fine. Plenty of people stay in one sport. Um, With my background and with the amount of sports I had worked, you know, I had been an athletic trainer for, um, for 12 years before I went to the Celtics and worked a ton of different sports. I had been a PT for nine years and worked in a lot of different settings. But because you're in a pro sport for an extended period of time, people start to think that that's your thing and that's all you can do. And so what attracted me, and I'm not just saying like everyone thinks that way. I just, I've noticed that in my career. Um, so what attracted me about it was getting into another sport and learning another system from a new group of people that I haven't worked with. Um, philosophically, I felt like we were aligned. The, and that, I think that's important for any, really a person going into any job, but I would say for, for physical therapists, especially try to get a feel and not, and, and, from conversations and words is one thing, like that's fine, but try to get a feel for the values of the people that you're, you know, considering joining. And hopefully those values, as you talk to the different leaders in an interview process are explained to you similarly. If they're not, it's not necessarily a red flag, but it's definitely a yellow flag. It's, I want to know more. I want to ask more questions. Um, and I've been through interviews where that was obvious. Like completely obvious where you're like, even if this job brought me to X and even if I grew in this way and even if I made this much money, like if you're talking to people and the values of that group are explained differently by a bunch of different people or they're overgeneralized or you talk to people that have worked there and they're like, yeah, that's not at all what I experienced when I was there. Those are things like you really want to flesh out. And I wasn't good at fleshing them out earlier. I think I'm a little bit better now, like now that I've worked for a couple different teams, but I think for anybody applying, whether it's a clinic, a residency, a fellowship, a pro sports team, a college, get a, get a really good feel for the value system that's there. Try to get accounts from people who have worked there and see how similar their accounts are to what what's being described. Um, That was what made me comfortable with going to the Celtics. Like that was a point of of comfort that grew into an attraction. Um, So the the position I joined there, not to be too long-winded, was they hired me as a physical therapist and and an assistant athletic trainer to assist the head athletic trainer. So that's the role I've been in for the last two years. Um, I work with a small group of players on the roster. And essentially day-to-day, I'm there for whatever they need. And help direct and design and implement their programming, their manual therapy delivery, the recovery strategies, their pre-game routine, um, all pre-practice routine, all those things. So um, everything you'd kind of picture a, a pro athlete going to from the time they walk in the door to the time they leave. I hope to at least be be involved in some of those things to help them uh, be ready to play and, and avoid injuries as much as they can.
0: Gotcha. So I want to kind of compare your two pro sports experiences, one with baseball, where, you know, when you left the Blue Jays, you were a medical coordinator. So you kind of had a lot of big picture ideas versus now when you're with the Celtics, um, you said you will kind of work with a smaller group of players. Um, what are some differences between, you know, working in pro baseball and working in pro basketball? You can get as like general or specific as you want with that question.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it it would have been interesting if I was in a similar position with Toronto and went to a similar position with the Celtics, because I think I'd probably have a better appreciation for, you know, maybe the 10,000 foot view. Um, But I sort of went from having the the 10 to 20,000 foot view to then like being on the ground. Um, And I think that was really good for me, to be honest. Um, But in terms of the settings themselves, I mean, the from a PT standpoint, the obvious thing is you're seeing a lot of upper extremity injuries um, in baseball. So the elbow, the shoulder, those are the regions that you know are going to cost cost players the most missed time. Ironically, the number one injury in baseball for at least the several years that I was there were hamstring injuries. So uh, a lot of people wouldn't think that, but, um, and that. So that's one that I think carried over because you see those in basketball, too. Um, with basketball, instead of seeing mostly elbows and shoulders, you end up seeing a lot of obviously foot and ankle and knee. So you are sort of going from seeing the distal, you know, half of the upper extremity or not even like just the upper extremity to now seeing the knee and below. Um, and, and of course there's overlap and similarities. You see some hips in baseball, you see some hips in basketball, you see some low back and, both sports. You see some cervical spine in both sports. Um, but by and large, I think from an anatomical standpoint, though, those are the biggest differences. Culturally, it was really interesting to go from this sort of group of people where you have like a ton of Americans in, in MLB. You have a ton of Latin Americans in MLB. I, I want to say it was around 30% or, or maybe a little below that uh, the years I was there. Um, so I had to pick up Spanish again, uh, <laughs> forgetting it for, for so many years, I wasn't great at it, but I could at least abble a little bit. And, uh, you know, it, it was kind of fun. I used to get made fun of a lot by the, by the Latin players. Cause I couldn't speak fluently and oftentimes <laughs> would, would fumble over my words. But, um, but to go from that to a sport where it's, you know, it's, it's American still, you do get a, a you know, a European population, but, um, but you get a, a large group of Americans and, um, you know, many of them, I, I would say probably more so than baseball from, from, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, the Afri- African, American, uh, population in the NBA, you know, that is the dominant group that's, that's in that, uh, athlete subset. So, um, so that was the biggest shift for me, I think, in terms of the athletes, um, I, Really like from working college sports and most of my career as a high school athletic trainer, like that part was very easy for me because every setting I had been in um, as an athletic trainer was, was similar to that already. But, um, but that was definitely different than baseball. Um, I think from a day-to-day standpoint, I don't think a whole lot is that different. And. You know maybe that is a little pearl to take away if you're if you're listening and you haven't worked professional sports or college sports is that um, understanding the human body and how it works you can sort of adapt those principles to wherever you are and i don't want to undervalue how unique certain settings can be because i haven't worked everywhere and there's many sports i haven't dedicated time to or even occupations um so I don't want to undervalue that, but I will say if you understand the, the human body well and you're okay at learning new things, like what it takes to develop skills in, in other areas, like in other sports that you're not accustomed to, you can apply those same principles. Um, so I'm happy to, if you want to go into any more detail on specifics between the two, like feel free to narrow it down and we could we could chat.
0: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about um, you know working with you said in every, you know, part of your career, you've been working with like an athletic population. Um, and so when you're focusing on, you know, athlete, a, who's getting back, you know, is getting back onto the field after a long rehab process, um, you know, high school, college, you know, pro, how do you kind of make sure those athletes are, you know, best prepared to get onto the field and run as fast as they can jump as high as they can collide into other people at the same time. Um, you know, especially kind of at your level working in the MLB and then working now in the NBA, like you guys just went to the, you know, NBA finals. And so how do you kind of make sure that they're as ready as they can be to step onto the court and perform at their highest level?
1: That's a great question. I I think to start that question, you have to sort of know um, what's normal for them. You know, so as you're doing, especially if you're working in a setting where – where you're maybe not with the team hundred percent of the time, or you're in a clinic or you're around sometimes, but not all the time because your role is pulling you in different directions. You've got to have a really a solid understanding of the demands of their sport. And a lot of us can assume what those are by saying, Oh, I've been around that sport. I understand it. It probably doesn't hurt to talk to a coach. Like even if you think, you know, all that, like, even now, if I think I know what our power forward needs or doesn't need, like, I probably should still go talk to his coach and have a quick conversation about, hey, look, from what you know about the player and who who's coming up in our schedule and the projected minutes or if he even has you know knowledge of that like is there anything you can tell me about how he should feel coming off x injury with what we have coming up you know like i don't think I think those conversations are pretty key and and um used to having those often. So I think it starts with that. Like Do a needs assessment, understand the demands of the sport. Um, I think the second thing is as you're building them up, asking the player, especially if it's a player who's been through things before, not that a, a first-time injury student athlete or athlete can't understand that. And you should always ask them regardless, but the players that have been through injuries before typically have a different appreciation for the return. And so maybe just having them walk you through a time they've rehabbed and come back from something and what was helpful and what wasn't like, what didn't work for you as you were coming back from that. Um, I think that's key too. most of the setting, like the pro sports settings, you're always going to have support. You're always going to have S and C. You're always probably going to have a sports science person with you. You're probably going to have an athletic trainer and a coach who know the player extremely well. Um, So I think using those, And then the the other part of it, this is probably one of the key parts from a rehab design standpoint. There's sort of two areas that you're going to have to work through. You're going to have to work through sort of your physical conditioning, preparation, uh, sports exposure with the player to make sure they're ready and pass all the markers you set, subjective and objective. But then there's the unplanned stuff, right? Then there's the like, well, how do we prepare? I remember rehabbing, and actually, when I was at Duke, I was rehabbing a professional athlete who had a a really serious uh, spine injury. Uh, He fractured, he had this very rare, there were only like two case studies out there on it, but a very rare fracture of his vertebrae. And I remember like getting all excited, you know, as my fellowship, you're like, this is great. I got a professional athlete on my list. Like he's a He played for a good team at the time. And I'm like, this is going to be really awesome. And and it was. It was great. But I just remember thinking, like, I could really prepare him to handle anything in his sport. And it just so happened, as I learned more about his sport and what he does, he played in a position where he could get blindsided really easily. And at a whim, could get knocked and go flying. And I'm like, okay. Like, he's 6'3". He's like 215. There's no way I'm going to be able to do that for him. Like whatever I could do is not going to be close. (laughs) It's going be done to him in his environment. So that's the part where you're like, you know, if you can, if you have the ability to, you need to start to put him in those situations. And the the only way to do that, right? The only way to put him in those situations is to put him out there. So I think that's where I learned that my, my philosophy before that was always like, You can prepare the guy even more than you think they need, right? Like prepare them beyond what they need and then return them. And that was where I started to sort of shift and curve my way of working into we're going to prepare them like heck, but we're also going to expose them like heck. So as soon as they're able to, we're going to get them on their surface, whatever it is. As soon as we think they're able to reasonably, we're going to have them start to go with defenders or with live situations as soon as we think they're ready to we're going to start to scrimmage them and go live and tell them to go all out but I think there is something to be said for trying to do that as soon and safely as possible versus over prepare you know really get their physical conditioning to the point where there's just zero question on it like a lot lot of what they need is to get back into their sport Um, and so balancing those two worlds I think is a challenge but I think um, in my current role, I'm appreciating that a lot more.
0: Gotcha. And so that, that line of, you know, I need to get them back out onto the court with, you know, live, oh, close to live bullets as possible flying. Um, I'm sure it's like a clinical judgment and it depends kind of answer. But how do you kind of determine, it's like, okay, I think we've done enough in the rehab or in the clinic or in the training room. But now I think they're ready to be able to do that. What does that decision making look like?
1: That's, that's a great question. I think the answer you'll get to that, like depending on who you ask, there'll probably be some strong similarities and some phrases and words that are used, and I'm going to repeat some of them um, in this answer, but I think it will vary sometimes depending on who you ask and, and what setting they're in. Um, for me personally, I would say, and in no specific order, but one of the most important ones is the player's confidence. And you can assess that by watching them, asking a coach, having a conversation with them, observing their body language, talking to their teammates casually without them really knowing. Um, I also think you can gauge that by using subjective outcome forms or, or patient-reported outcome forms that are that are relevant. Uh, we recently uh, had a a series of similar injuries uh, in the setting I'm in now, and and when I say series, like there's only 17 players on the roster. So (laughs) more than two is a series, (laughs) two or more is like enough to like think about it. Right. So, um, so yeah, like we recently had the same conversation and decided to use an outcome form with a player. And and that's not always common in, in the sports setting, but I think that tells you an awful lot without uh, you having to ask all those individual questions and make the person overthink them. You can just kind of quickly have them fill out a form and, And the more they do that, they get better at it. They get better at not overthinking the answers and just thinking about how they feel in the moment. Um, But I I think those are key. Uh, I think the player's confidence is number one. I think all the objective markers that you set along the way through the staged rehabs, really important. I think what gets missed sometimes is not reflecting on the trends along the way in certain areas. So if you have one uh, outcome form that's sort of, Rose quickly early on, like, or I should say, rose, like it improved, it improved quickly and then leveled off, versus one that actually took its time getting to where you needed it to go. Our interpretation and sort of application of that information should be different. Um, I think a lot of the times we want to know that whatever systems in the body got inhibited by them not being able to participate, we're able to effectively assess each of those systems. So without getting crazy detailed, you know, the cardiovascular system pretty much for any sport, if you're off, if you're on the shelf and you're not playing, hopefully there's a way to assess that. And, uh, and I won't go into all the details on the ways you could do that, but I think like that's just an example of one system that you want to at least have an understanding. If that system's not close you're probably not putting the person in the best position to be successful, not have a repeat injury, not have a a different injury. Um, uh, Let me think what else. I think those are the key. I mean, to be honest, like the, the, the last several years I've relied a lot on coaches to help me think through some of these problems. And if they have something they're interested with in a player to see if it's back to where it was getting creative on how we could measure it or asking all the other resources you have on, on how they could measure it for you. Um, but for me, those are the biggest things the the players or the athletes confidence, uh, are they, are they, have they progressed the way you were hoping from an objective standpoint through the rehab course? Have they been exposed in their sport enough through live competition to feel confident? And, um, and, uh, the last part would be the part I just mentioned about, um, uh, coaches perspective on
0: them. Gotcha. Um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit more about your role now, kind of walk us through a day in the life for you right now, you guys are in the off season. Um, but let's say, you know, home, you know, home opener kind of, kind of walk us through your day. Um,
1: let's do a practice day, you know, versus
0: a game day for you.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, start with a practice day. Those are practice days are pretty straightforward, at least in season. And a lot of times I think it helps understand the density of the schedule. So the first year I was with the Celtics was um, coming off a shortened off season, coming off the bubble year in 2020, the density of the schedule is very high. We were playing like four games a week regularly. Um, This past year was three to four games a week. So a lot of the times, especially as the season gets going, practices are from a physical standpoint pretty light for the guys who play a lot. Um, so I just say that to preface that, you know, the guys you see earlier in the day typically are either guys who are not playing cause they're injured or guys who, uh, don't necessarily play high minutes that need work from you, but, um, sort of a typical day is to go in and, um, make sure I understand the schedule prior to getting in and, and who's supposed to be in and when a lot of the preparation for each day happens before you get there. Um, and then once you're there, um, typically the guys who aren't playing a lot, will do something. Uh, if it's a day when they can go live and play against each other to continue to develop and, and play at a high level and, and play like more intense, uh, basketball, um, they'll be doing stuff first. So uh, you know, being around being around those guys, making sure they have what they need. Um, if there's any of them that I work with at the time, you know, communicating with them ahead of time on the time to come in to, to get work done. Um, a lot of times it's also just rounding up with the rest of the staff and making sure I'm aware of what's going on um, with each player. You know, each of the players that I'm sort of overseeing their their program um i typically log into our computer system just to look through their loads from the game before uh look through any cha- any of the trends have a talk with our sports uh science lead on anything he's seeing from any of his testing um the goal with all that is that before the player walks in the building you already sort of have a pulse on what their last couple days has been like um and then once they're there, you're able to sort of ask some questions to figure out how you could be most effective for them that, that session. Um, but typically, for a few of the players who play a lot, having a, a touch point before they get on the court is key. So that gives you a chance to assess anything you want to assess. Um, if they're due to, to get something measured, you can do that. Otherwise, it's, hey, how you feeling? Talk to me. Like, what's bothering you? Um is there anything bothering you? Okay, cool. You feel good today. Like, uh, how about that hip thing you had two weeks ago? Like, has that resurfaced in the last game And were you good? Okay, cool. You're good. Um, but at least it gives you that touch point and you can do maintenance work or whatever other targeted work you need to do with them. Typically those sessions will then go from having them on the table, at least the way it's designed with the Celtics to then having them move into the weight room to get, get their activation and their pre-court routine going. Um, And so that's what you would picture that being, you know, it's exercises to turn muscles on, shut muscles off, stretch, lengthen, tighten, shorten. Um, A lot of the injury prevention pieces will be in that pre-court routine. So the guys who have tendinopathies, uh, degenerative joint issues, um, anything that we think can help them in sort of a 15 minute window before they play, um, and then, you know, they have a, a pre-practice meeting to go over key points from the last game or film. They get out there and practice. Typical practices aren't that long. They're, they're shorter, um, sort of the everything they need, nothing they don't model. And uh, once all the key points are hit, players will do individual work after that. Come in afterwards, they'll either get a lift in or they'll come into the athletic training room, get their recovery, manual therapy, maintenance work done. And then that's pretty much it so um it it sounds like a lot of stuff on a practice day the amount of time really isn't that much i mean most players are in the building for under three hours um total so um that's kind of what a practice day looks like game days are, are longer in the nba there's a typically a shoot around in the morning like late morning um and then, you know, the everyone breaks, has an hour or two break before everyone gets ready to leave to get to the arena. Um, and then it's not too different of a than a pre-practice day. You try to get a physical touch point with every player. Um, make sure you have a good pulse for how they're doing. Make sure you understand the game plan for that day for any of them, if they're expected to play more or less minutes. Um, communicate, you know, I, I would say – they are group, half the games I would work the bench, half the games I wouldn't, so we would sort of just rotate between a few of us. Um, but if you're not on the bench, making sure you're communicating to the head athletic trainer on the bench and to um, one of the PTATCs on the side of the bench, uh, any needs that the players have that you work with. Um, and then for the most part, once that ball gets thrown up, it's actually a lot of fun. Um, that's I would consider that to be – uh, one of the more enjoyable parts of, of the job is when you get to sit there and you actually get to watch them do what they do. And um, going back to the beginning, when you were asking me about how I got into PT and athletic training, I mean, I think that was probably the key. I wanted to be able to work day to day and prepare people as best I can for what they're going to do. But then I wanted to be able to go watch them do it. Um, and there's very few jobs in the PT world where you get to do that. Um, so I think that's probably one of the more rewarding parts. And then post game it's, uh, it's recovery. It's understanding if there's any new injuries and, and what's going to take to get more information on those injuries, whether it's diagnostics or physicians or whatever. Um, and then it's a pretty, you know, typically a pretty late night and, and, uh, that's it.
0: Gotcha. Um, so you, you kind of mentioned, you know, being able to help someone perform at their highest level and actually getting to see them do it. Um. You know, more specifically, do you have a favorite memory of your time working with the Celtics so far?
1: Oh, man. Um, I mean, I, honestly, it has to be, you know, beating Miami on their court uh, to sort of clinch the Eastern Conference to go to the finals. That uh, I think from, like, a total team excitement standpoint, like, there's no question. Like, that was, that was the most exciting moment. Um, and then honestly it honestly was cool cause it was a very shared moment. Like, I don't know if how many people watched that series, but it, collectively there are a lot of different people that contributed to that, that series win. Um, and I would say it was the same across the staff too. Like there were certain coaches, um, and then performance staff who I, I think stepped up in a big way in different ways, um, during that series. So, it was, re- it was just really fun. Like I, that's the best way to describe it. Um, but that, that, I would say that's the, probably the top, top memory.
0: Gotcha. And so last question before we get you out of here, we appreciate you being so uh, generous with your time and your experiences. Um, do you have any advice for any aspiring sports clinicians, you know, you know, regardless of if they want to work, sp- uh, sports in a clinic or at the college level, or at the pro level, what advice would you give to anybody that wants to get into the sports PT world?
1: uh i I think the first thing is to decide how bad they want it like is this really a passion is this really something that like you know to me it always felt like it was something that i really if i was lucky enough to get the opportunity to do i would never regret and not only that i would like every day wouldn't feel like a job I, i wouldn't mind having to stay later or wouldn't mind having to you know, look something up that I didn't quite fully understand to try to understand it more so I can be better at what I was doing. So the first step I think is just decide, and that's something really difficult to decide in the moment. It's probably going to take some time, but be on a quest to find out how important that is to you. If it towards the end of that quest or somewhere along the way, you decide that that is really vital for you. It's essential. Then just commit to finding a way to doing it no matter what. And, uh, and I, I didn't have like a ton of like adversity or obstacles to face, but I think like I think a lot of people will will aim to do that and then either get shy away or get nervous about an opportunity that doesn't pay enough or one you're gonna have to work a lot of hours or one where you're gonna miss weddings or one where you're gonna not be around your family or you're gonna have to relocate. Like I think those things tend to deter people today. And just I talked to a lot of different younger professionals and students, and that seems to be some combination of those factors seems to be what scare people away. And to be honest, if those are factors that are super important to you and are the reason you can't fully commit to trying to achieve, you know, what you want to in your career, like in terms of like a unique setting, where it's going to require you to to miss some of those things, then that's okay. That's totally fine. Um, But At the same time, if you're saying that this is really important and you want to prioritize it and want to try to do it, then you're really going to have to prioritize it and really try to do it. Um, So that would be number one, like try to identify how important it is. Once you've identified that it is, in fact, then really commit to it. At the same time, understand there's a bunch of different avenues for how to get there. So while we've talked a little bit about residencies and fellowships, you don't have to do one of those like I did because I felt like I needed that. Uh, I don't think I was fully prepared prior to that. But I would say you don't have to do that. There's a number of ways you can make yourself uh, more marketable, more diverse. Um, There's a ton of programs out there that are more international, too, now that, uh, you know, you can have a PT sort of foundation, uh, but you can go on and get a master's in high performance human movement sports science. You can get a PhD in leadership. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do to make yourself a little bit more diverse. At some point it's likely along the way, you're going to have to take a job or you're going to have to volunteer. You're going to have to take an opportunity where the immediate rewards and the benefits aren't reaped right away. And that's the, that's probably the crossroads for a lot of people is like, do I really want to do that? Do I really want to work for, you know, this team and sacrifice my weekends and never be around and make very little money. At some it's likely you're going to have to do that at least for a short period of time, if not more until you get a full opportunity. So don't be nervous about those. Um, I think one thing I'll touch on briefly, not to get too long winded with this question, but I I've, in the last four or five years, I've talked to a lot of physical therapy students who want to have a, a, a sports specific job. They want to be in, a, in basketball or baseball or the NFL or work for a college. And they're like, man, I just don't know how to get my foot in the door. Like I, I'm going to have my degree soon. I'm going to hopefully pass my boards. But like, what do I do after that? Like, I don't want, maybe some of them want to do a residency or fellowship. Some don't. Some want to pursue like an SCS, some don't. Um, but they're like, what, like, how can I do that? And my best advice for those people because I think that's the majority of people that want to get into the sports PT world, I would say, find your way to an athletic training room somehow. Whether that's calling the local high schools, wherever you end up geographically with your first PT job, but calling the local high schools, get to know the athletic trainers. Like before you even start to approach them about what you can offer them or how you can help or how they might be able to even learn from you or you learn from them before any of that, just get to know them like show up and just be like, Hey, what's up, man? Or, or, you know, how are you doing? Like, how long have you worked here? I'd love to learn more about what you do. Um, I think having those conversations and building a little trust there is key. But once you do that, hopefully you can find your way into a situation where you're actually observing, shadowing, or even volunteering in that setting. And if you can do that, I think it'll help you then be able to approach a job opportunity with, Actually, I've been working for the last six months in a high school athletic training room and I'm really enjoying it. And I really think I could thrive in that environment for X, Y, and Z. I also think you'll learn a great deal in those environments that may, uh, that may sort of facilitate your increased interest in pursuing this field, or it may make you go, you know what? I don't know if that's for me. Um, but anyways, that's my biggest advice that, I, that I've given to students is try to find your way into an athletic training room somehow.
0: Gotcha. Um, you know, I've, we've had a lot of dual certified uh, PT ATCs on, on the podcast. And uh, I think getting that experience and getting that knowledge from the training room has been super beneficial to those other people. So having that piece of advice for PT students or PTs that want to get involved in sports and getting them into the training room where they may not have had any clinical experience is a great piece of advice.
1: What did, what did you notice, Chase? Like were you ever when did you find yourself in an athletic training room? Have you ever gotten to experience that setting?
0: So I actually have not. you know at you know back when I just moved from Gainesville, uh, I worked with an athletic trainer covering events after I'd get off work because just my schedule. I would get off work pretty late and then I would just bolt over to the high school right after and you know work with the trainer or you know work with the trainer covering sideline um, doing sideline coverage. And we would always like talk about the different athletes that I may have seen last week and, you know, talk about how the rehab process is going. And sometimes if she needed like a second set of eyes, um, it's like, you know, this is not getting better. What what would you do? We would kind of always talk about cases that way. And I would do the same vice versa. If I had a patient that wasn't getting better and like, what would you do for this particular scenario? So, you know, having gone to an athletic training room yet, you know, currently working on that, but you know, having that collaboration with the athletic trainer has been super great. And you know, has brought in a lot of new ideas for myself.
1: Man, that's great. And I should preface it with: it really doesn't matter if it like. I think the athletic training room is great because you'll get to see like the amount of volume of of you know athletes that come in. But it, but it could be what you just described. Like as long as you're working side by side with an athletic trainer with athletics, that that's great. Um, that sounds like a great opportunity. Like as you said, to discuss cases and it's probably even better for you because you're actually seeing some of these, these uh, players in the clinic too.
0: Right. Um, So Patrick, that's all the questions I have for you today. Uh, Before we get you out of here, do you have anything that you'd like to plug any social media or anything like that? Oh man.
1: (laughs) uh, So it's funny. I actually recently joined LinkedIn. Um, I I was never on LinkedIn. I started talking to a couple of coworkers who were on and I'm like, you know what? I'll put that out there. So I, I do have a LinkedIn if anyone wants to connect. On there, Um, I've had a Twitter account for a while. I I'm not on it a lot. Um, I I think I've posted very few. The the posts (laughs) on there are probably really old, uh, but nothing I'm embarrassed of. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, it's my my Twitter Twitter handle is uh, PchaseSportsPT. Um, My last name is C H A S S E. Um, But yeah, no, that those are the only two plugs I could even think Mm -hmm. of. Of offering. Everything else is, uh, is non existent for me on social media. But I-, I would like to just express to you, Chase, that this was awesome. Um, I-, I really commend you for your time and energy and thought that you've put into these podcasts. It's not easy to do this on top of all the other things you're doing. But I know myself, you know, rewind t- 12, 13 years ago, you know, this wasn't a thing. Like there really weren't podcasts and um i had very i felt like at the time i had i had some limited resources in terms of learning more about how to get into a sports pt job um so i just want to tip my cap to you and and thank you for putting this great resource out for so many people and and feel free to encourage people that you know want to connect or want more information i'm always happy to have a conversation and and try to help gotcha patrick
0: thank you for the, the kind words you know um, as, as crazy it is trying to schedule and record and edit all these podcasts and stuff, you know, when I, when I see somebody that, you know, connects with somebody, they really like resonated with their message or their story that like, that makes me really happy because, you know, I'm not making any money off this podcast. I wish I was, but you know, seeing people being able to connect and network with like potential future mentors or potential future coworkers. I think that's like one of the coolest things for me to be able to provide some sort of value to somebody else. Um, so I appreciate the kind words for that.
1: Keep killing it, brother. You're doing a great job.
0: Okay. And with that being said, this has been the latest episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. Another huge thank you to the Boston Celtics, PTATC, Patrick Chase for coming on this episode of the Sports Rehab Experts Podcast. If you liked what you heard or want to hear more episodes from great future guests, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening.